minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. Look, I've got some bad news. This program is pre-recorded. Maybe in two days' time the world will have come to an end. But that's life. I've got family commitments. Now, if you're wondering what the Wednesday Action Group are doing, well, they won't be there today, which is really good, but they'll be at the corner of uh, Spencer and Collins Street outside Southern Cross Station, the privatised public railway station where they get a whole 90 centimetres a footpath, so come and join them, 11.30 to 12.30 today. That's right, you are listening to this program. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It is broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Lascaux, I'm hosting today's program. And just in case you don't think I'll be back for the dinner at Carlton, I will be back for the dinner. I may be a few minutes late, but I will be back for the dinner. starts at 6 p.m., an evening with Joe Toscano. I can't think of anything more boring than talking to myself. But if other people come, I can talk with you. So it's around La Poquette or around, I think it's around 397 Raftown Street, Carlton or Carlton North. Not North Carlton, but Carlton North. So the dinner's there. And if you can't make this week's dinner, next week, the 19th of December, will be the big knees up Mother Brown shindig. Uh, the breakup party for uh, all the listeners to the Anarchist World this week, Radical Australia, and talk back with attitudes here. All them, all welcome. Maybe you can bring a Chris Kringle, but again, you've got to pay for your own food and drinks. That's that's the that's the key. Now, if you're wondering what anarchy is all about, no, it's not about having a great deal of fun and enjoying yourself and being part of a community and uh, creating that new world in your hearts. An anarchist society is based on a simple concept. Anarchos without rulers, creating a society without rulers. How do you create a society without rulers? Well, you look at what gives rulers power. What gives rulers power? Inequalities in power and wealth. That's right, very simple. Inequalities in power and wealth. The more unequal a society, the more controlled it is, the fewer people benefit in the long run. So an anarchist struggle is to devolve power, that's to share power, and to share wealth. It's about putting the interests of the many before the interests of the few. Simple. And if you don't think you're an anarchist, think again. Anybody involved in struggles to share wealth and devolve power, whether you like it or not, is an anarchist because they're working towards that goal of creating a society without rulers. Not without leaders, not without rules, but without rulers. Where collectively we decide what type of society we live in 
how that society operates, what the laws are, and the list goes on and on. Now, if you think we do live in a democratic society, I've got some bad news for you. Now, I'd just like to talk about the difference between direct democracy, which is the type of democracy that anarchists talk about, and representative democracy. Now, in Australia, we've got a particularly interesting form of representative democracy. And I, yes, you are right, I am being ironical. In 1925, or could have been 1922, because so few people bothered to vote at the federal election, less than 25%, compulsory voting was introduced by the federal government in order to ensure that citizens did their duty. And what is the duty you do when you cast a ballot? And, you know, I understand the limitations of representative democracy. You make a choice. That's right. You decide who is going to make decisions for you over the next three to four years. That's right. You decide who your ruler is going to be. Isn't that nice? So representative democracy at the end point is basically two minutes of illusory power. Illusory power because you may think you've got the power to form a government but ultimately... Decisions aren't made in Parliament. They're made by those people who pull the parliamentary strings. Decisions are made in the boardrooms of national and transnational corporations whose major job it is to create profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Now, I've been a little bit perplexed. I've been very... Not a little bit. I've been very perplexed. Terribly perplexed by the Banking Royal Commission. Everybody's been talking about it's the culture. It's the banking culture that's wrong. As long as we got the banking culture right, it'll all be okay. And then I kind of cringe when I hear the word corporate responsibility. Corporate responsibility. Now, we do live in a capitalist society, and in our capitalist society in Australia is almost... 100% dominated by the private sector. Not individual young men and women, you know, fighting for the rights, you know, to sell their goods to each other in an egalitarian community. We've got a situation where we are seeing the logical endpoint of capitalism, especially capitalism where there is no regulation in terms of what happens. And the natural endpoint of a capitalist system where there is no regulation by the state of the activities of those corporations is they get bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful and more powerful and more powerful. Because you, as a citizen, have a responsibility to the state and the people around you, but corporations do not have a responsibility to the nation's state. They don't have the, a responsibility to the community around them. The ultimate reason for a corporation's existence is to create ever-increasing profits for its major shareholders. And obviously, a little, a little bit of that profit will cascade to your mum and dad investors and their superannuation funds. But the ultimate responsibility of a corporation is to make ever-increasing profits. If you don't make ever-increasing profits, you can't attract capital. If you can't attract capital, it goes belly up and everybody loses their money. 
So when somebody talks about corporate responsibility or the responsibility of the banking sector, you know, to the population as a whole, or the responsibility of some mega corporation which dominates, say, food distribution or, you know, manufacturing, that it has a responsibility to the nation's state. It's a lot of garbage. Look at the way, you know, Google, Facebook and all those institutions work. They're transnational. They don't actually, they transcend national borders. So their major responsibility is very simple and very clear. And anybody who thinks differently needs to think again. The raison d'etre, the reason for the existence of a corporation is to maximise profits for its major shareholders irrespective of the human social, environmental and national costs. And if that means ripping off your customers, as we've seen with the Banking Royal Commission, something we've talked about on this program for over four decades, our customers are ripped off. If it means ripping off your customers, as we see with the electricity, privatised electricity system, where loyal customers are those that are kicked in the, in the teeth and charge more than uh, customers who churn their accounts... You know, or, or to maximise your profits. Well, you rip off your bloody customers to maximise your profits. I mean, if there are laws in place, maybe that inhibits the amount of ripping off you're going to do as a corporation. But if you deregulate the economy, as we've seen during the last 40 years, during the deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, <sighs> globalisation era... You see what happens. So if you can't rip off your customers, you squeeze your workers. You squeeze the very people who make that profit. You deunionize your workforce so they can't work collectively against you. You promote the concept of individual bargaining where yours truly goes up to the you know, to the delegate or the representative of the CEO and says, excuse me, can I have a wage rise? Next, you're fired. Okay? As if, if, you know, individual bargaining in a corporate situation, you've got the same power. Of course, yeah, there's an equality in power. That's why people need to bargain collectively. So what do corporations and large and small businesses do? They tend to push de-unionisation. They don't want unionised workers. They don't want their workers to join a union. And we've seen over the last 40 years successive Liberal and Labor governments do their very best to remove what teeth the trade union sector had. That's right. The power trade unions were able to exercise 50 years ago is extraordinary compared to the power they can exercise in 2018. I mean, about the only thing trade unions can do effectively these days, it's not illegal, and they are working to make it illegal, is to actually support the ALP during an election campaign. I mean, I know you all think you live in a free society, and we've got all the freedoms under the sun. Well, I'll tell you one freedom you ain't got, the freedom to withdraw your labour. A striking is illegal in this country. Individual workers can be fined $10,000 a day 
That's right, $10,000 a day. Unions can be fined millions of dollars a day. So about the only time you can remove your labour is during a, is during a recognised enterprise bargaining period. And even then, as we saw in New South Wales earlier on in the year of the railway workers, the so-called independent arbitrator can step in and declare it illegal, although it's in the prescribed period of negotiations. So this is what you do. It's very simple to maximise your profits. You de-unionise your workplace. You terrorise your workers, making them feel insecure in their employment. You you, uh, uh, squeeze out the maximum return so that you can actually increase your return to your shareholder. So don't be surprised when corporations like Uber, you know, supposedly disrupt the marketplace from the traditional players and then you find out they're worse than the traditional players because they don't actually follow any of the rules in terms of compensating their workers because they're individual contractors and what does an individual contractor have to do for their $10 an hour? They have to work out, they have to get their own sick pay, their own insurance, there's no holidays, there's no load leaving, there's no sick days, there's no, you know, family uh, violence uh, days, and the list goes on and on, because they're individual contractors, aren't they, peddling their life away, you know, no workers' comp. So this is the situation in the 21st century. You have a population that's highly indebted. You have a population where wages growth is stagnant. You have a situation where trade unions have been legislated out of existence by successive governments. You have a situation where people are find themselves as insecure part-time employment, an increasing part of the population. And then you find yourself in a situation where corporations dominate the economic landscape. Through privatisation, we have seen more and more and more and more and more and more and more functions which are carried out by the state on behalf of the individual being given away for almost nothing to the private sector. I'll give you a simple example. Now, Betty Bank Private was created by the Hawke Labor government to provide a private health insurance system in the private health marketplace for those Australians who are forced by legislation to buy private health insurance in order not to maximise their uh, taxation. Now, Mr Rabbit, the good Mr Rabbit, the man who's going to lose his seat... It's about time he lost his seat and was asked to move on and work for the IPA. Mr Rabbit privatised for $4 billion Medibank Private. So what happens when you privatise a public asset? We now have a situation where the private health insurance industry is dominated 
by three or four large corporations who are heavily dependent on their shareholders. And guess what? Services have decreased. Costs have increased. Boom, boom. And the return of $150 million a year to the federal, uh, to the tax coffers has just disappeared. Disappeared overnight. And this is the, this is what happens. But the, the horrible thing about privatisation is not the fact that an asset which has been built up through the blood, sweat, tears and money of Australians over generations is basically given away to the private sector for a peppercorn cost. But what happens is the whole economic equation changes. I mean, we all know about state capitalism, where the state owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, and there's no private sector. And we all know about private capitalism, as we have in Australia, where every field of economic endeavour is controlled by the private sector, we all know what happens in these situations. There is no competition. There is no competition in an economy which is dominated, state capitalism which is dominated by the state, and there is no competition amongst corporations in a corporate capitalist economy. The economy is just a fancy word for talking about the transactions which exist within a community, you know, financial transactions. Just fancy word, don't let it rattle you. So if there's no competition, they basically set the standards of service, they set the cost, and they gouge you as a consumer because there's very little regulation to date. There's been, you know, most of the regulation which was incurred has disappeared. So during the deregulation era, which we've been through, and I think we're almost at an end because we've seen the natural consequences of deregulation, laws which were enacted to protect working people and protect individuals from, you know, avarice uh, corporations moved away, removed to maximise profits. Boom, boom. Simple. We see what happens. So let's look at what's happening in the world. Paris riots. You know, everybody's a bit surprised by the Paris riots. Well, don't be surprised by the Paris riots. The French, successive French governments have a history of total brutality against working people. In 1871, during, I think, the Third Franco-Prussian War, the people of Paris rose up and took over the city and formed the Paris Commune, one of the most socially progressive and egalitarian communities in the history of this planet. So what did the French government do? It came to an agreement with its Prussian foes. It sent in Prussian troops with French troops into Paris. The whole of central Paris was demolished. 
And of these 50,000 prisoners which were taken, many were deported, and every tenth man was shot dead on the spot to act as an example to the rest of Europe what happens when people revolt against their masters. So don't think the French government has a history of uh, listening to its people. And when they rebuilt Paris, they built it in such a way they could bring cannons right into Paris in case there's another revolt. And those of you, you know, who like to go to musicals, think about it. I'll just, that's, I'm only going to tell you that this week. There is a musical, Beauty and the Beast, crafted on the remains of a communard who was found in Paris many decades later. So, in Paris today, unlike that idiot, and I hate to use the word idiot to compare Mr Trump because in my apologies to, you know, bona fide idiots to compare you with uh, President Groper Trump thinks it's, you know, a reaction against climate change. Because we have seen a change in radical activity in this country and around the world. A huge change over the last 40 years. During the last 40 years, during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, revolution, which has swept over the world, especially the Western world, we have seen the growth of social movements which are issue-orientated and the destruction of political movements which are based on the idea of trying to create economic equality, not just equality of of opportunity, but economic equality. And we have seen the so-called left, or whatever it's called these days, put most of its energy in these issue-orientated campaigns. The thing about issue-orientated campaigns, whether it's uh, marriage equality, whether it's uh, deforestation, is that they can be incorporated within the current social and political framework. I mean, the world didn't come to an end when marriage equality was uh, voted into federal parliament. The world didn't come to an end when homosexuality was decriminalised and legalised. The world didn't come to an end when the Franklin River was allowed to run free. So within a capitalist framework, we can have socially progressive movements which have minimal, if no, impact on economic survival. And what we're seeing around the world, whether it's Paris, whether it's Great Britain, wherever, whether it's the United States of America, where people put their faith in a multi-billionaire who's never paid a cent's tax in his life to resolve their problems at the bottom end of the pecking order, which is 
ludicrous. What we're seeing is people saying, we may have moved socially, but you've forgotten us. You've forgotten us. We've now moved from hope to despair. So an increasing part of the population sees its future laid out for it. And it can see no way out of that future. Debt, part-time work, renting, poor future for their children. They can see no way out of this, irrespective of the socially progressive ideas which pervaded the community. And they see that some of those people involved in the socially progressive movement are economic conservatives. Have the time and money to indulge in those types of struggles because they've got that security that money brings. So you've seen this clash in the community between three forces the clash between the state. Those people who are socially progressive but economically conservative and those people who may be socially conservative or progressive but economically radical. We've seen this clash. There's no point having marriage equality if you can't afford the wedding. So across the world, we are seeing fear become a major mobilising force. And we are seeing elements, both on the fringes and at the very centre of governments, using this fear and stoking the fires of division. And what the Paris riots represent It's people from both ends of the spectrum coming together to ensure the state fulfills its responsibility to the people that elected, the citizens. So when the President of France stands up there and when the Australian, when the Prime Minister of Australia stands up and speaks on behalf of the nation, they are not speaking on behalf of you and me. They are speaking on behalf of the deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, globalisation brigade, which dominates so many facets of people's everyday existence. Because the state, as a result of the deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, revolution, and I'll go through those words, deregulation is a very simple word to mean that laws which were put in place to protect people's rights and conditions are removed to maximise company profits. Privatisation means 
that assets which were paid for by the blood, sweat and tears of generations of people which provide a service to all people like public housing, not just a limited number like community and social housing, you know, becomes the raison d'etre of government. Corporatisation means allowing large corporations to dominate everyday activity and globalisation means is removing your sovereign rights. I mean, I know the current government loves to talk about we will control who comes to our borders, but unfortunately there may be a few refugees in leaky boats which cause a bit of a problem for them. But when people turn up with a fistful of cash, they're more than welcome into this country. So we are seeing a change. We are seeing a change from traditional so-called Marxist analysis, and it pains me to use that word, because it never had any reality. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scarn. I'm hosting today's program. Now, a few websites: anarchistmedia.org, public interests before corporate interests. A few Facebook pages: defend and extend public housing, public housing, everybody's business. A tonne of in a way more boy in a ton of all dot org website. And I'll talk about that later on in the program. You can write to me. Yes, I do still answer letters. I don't get many these days, but you can write to me at Post Office Box twenty, Parkville three oh five two. Post Office Box twenty, Parkville three oh five two. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo dot com and you can leave nice messages on O four three nine three nine five four eight nine. Yes, you can go to my personal Facebook page. You won't find the colour of the underpants I'm wearing. In case I'm wearing underpants, you'll never know. But you'll find a lot of the activities that I'm involved in. So it's Toscana for the public. So let's get back to these changes we are seeing, changes which people are having difficulty analysing. Because it does have profound consequences, because we are at a crossroads. Because that revolt against governments representing that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, that revolt can go two ways. And we are seeing it going two ways. You can create fear about the other the person with the funny hair, the tattoos, the different colour skin who speaks a funny language that you're not familiar with, that looks different, that's older, that's younger, that has a different sexual orientation. It's always easy to find scapegoats, especially if they look different, if they wear a funny hat or a veil over their heads. Very easy to create scapegoats. And one thing I learnt when I was involved in the 10-day vigil on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House from the 14th to 24th of November was how important it is not to scapegoat. Because many homeless people who came up to talk to us believed that their public housing unit had been given away to a refugee. 
They didn't see the issues the government not providing enough resources to expand the public housing sector, but they saw it as a a thing about limited resources and somehow the house that they were entitled to had somehow been given to somebody else. So this hatred, which is fostered in the community, not just by governments, but by ultra-right groups, who think somehow that they can, you know, recreate the 1930s on a wave of racial purity or nationalism, is a danger. Because when people who are socially progressive look down their noses at people who are economically exploited, I never use the word disadvantage, exploited, you've got a powder keg situation. And we are now in that situation. And public interest before corporate interest was set up in 2015 for that very reason. To create a political, social and cultural movement based on a political party which uses direct action, consumer boycotts and election, electoral politics as its uh, three main forms of action, that's inclusive, that understands the reason people are homeless is because of government policy not because somebody else of a different colour or religion has got your flat, in inverted commas. And the reason we have so much structural inequality, and the word structural inequality is a fancy word which means that inequality that is built into the system, that is part and parcel of the system, is the fact that legislation is constantly passed which reinforces the power, economic, social and cultural, of a small group of people. So we've now reached a situation in so-called parliamentary democracies, and we talked about parliamentary democracy at the beginning of this program, that people see no solution to their problems by casting a ballot every three to four years because... Parliaments at the state and federal level are basically there as puppets for a corporate sector that dominates economic activity in this country. And if you think the economic struggle isn't important, see what happens if you don't receive six weeks' wages or somebody turns off the Social Security tap because you you know some private corporation says, oh, this bloke or this woman hasn't been, uh, you know, following their uh, new start obligations. Bing, bing, cut off. Give you an example. A month ago, asylum seekers and refugees received a little note in the mail saying they'll no longer be able to apply for a new start allowance. Boom, boom. It's that simple. quite extraordinary when you think about it, what's happening in our society today. So you've got this problem for the state 
fewer and fewer people believe what they read or see. They're sick of manufactured news. They're sick of being told that everything, we live in the greatest nation on earth when they look at around them, when you've got 700,000 people receiving food aid in a population of 225 million every week in this country. When they see young people, they see their children not even able to access rental accommodation, let alone raise a deposit to buy a house in an overinflated housing market. When they see people ripping off thousands of people of hundreds of thousands, if not hundreds of millions of dollars and get away scot-free, and if it wasn't for the persistence of all those people that have been ripped off, there'd be no Royal Commission into the banking sector. And when they're herded into the polling booth every three to four years, and let's not forget less than 80% of people voted at the last Victorian state election, you begin to see there's a real crisis, an existential crisis in parliamentary democracy, in the ability of parliament to resolve the issues that have occurred as a direct result of parliament refusing, refusing point blank, to put the interests of the many, the citizens and residents of this country, before the interests of those who provide the finances. So don't be fooled. The issue isn't the colour of a person's skin or the language they speak or their gender or sexual orientation or, you know, whether they've got an earring or not. The issue is inequality. Structural inequality. And if you don't think inequality is not an issue, 40 years ago, just 40 years ago, 40, four decades ago, for every dollar which was earned by an investor, 66.6 cents, two-thirds went to the workers involved in creating that dollar and 33.3 cents went to the investor. Forty years later, courtesy of legislation at the local council level, state government level, federal government level, 40 years later, the equation is reversed. 33.3 cents in every dollar which is earned goes to the people who create that wealth, the workers... And 66.6 cents goes to the people who provide the capital to keep the system ticking over. So you can see that this change has profound ramifications for Australians. Many, 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 many Australians who feel they have been pushed aside, ignored, marginalised by a social movement that's forgotten that the essence 
of equality, the essence of people being able to live reasonable lives, irrespective of who they are, is having access to the wealth of that country. And when you have governments specifically marginalise and brutalise sections of the population by creating a Machiavellian social security system which you need a PhD to navigate, when you have governments which keep a new start allowance at the same level for the last, over for the last 20 years, when you have governments who think it's acceptable that 700,000 Australians, about 8% of the population, sorry, 4% of the population, need food aid every week in order to survive, when you think it's acceptable that the only people that are making money are those who've got wealth, who can then invest that wealth and use legislative loopholes or legislation like negative gearing to maximise their profits while other people can't even have the security of a roof over their own heads because rents eat up 40 to 50% of their weekly wages. Public housing waiting lists only, only provide housing for dire emergencies. And in Victoria, it was interesting, I was looking at some... uh, some, uh, Correspondence from the Human Services Department. We don't have a Ministry of Housing anymore. And it didn't talk about public housing. It talked about social housing, private housing. So what's the answer? Well, there are many answers. Many answers. Because it doesn't have to be this way. We find ourselves in this political cul-de-sac this social cul-de-sac, this evolutionary cul-de-sac, because of decisions which have been made which put the interests of the few before the many. So a few simple ways, short of outright revolution, short of violence, a few simple ways that we can address this problem are, one, give trade unions back the right to strike. Give trade unions back the power to enter an employer's workplace and actively encourage people to join up. Increase the new start allowance by introducing a 1% stock market turnover tax on the stock market, you'd raise at least $25 billion a year by introducing a simple 1% stock market turnover tax. Provide secure, safe public housing, not just for people in dire emergencies, not just for people on Social Security benefits, but for wage earners who will never be able to enter the private property market. And how do, you, how do you do this? You allocate sales tax, which is a tax which is levied on a home. Sorry, stamp duty. You elevate, you quarantine stamp duty, the tax which is levied on when you buy a home, into public housing. You could house a million Victorians 
5 million Australians within a decade. And if you're told there's no money, well, there's money to dig tunnels, there's money for roads, there's money for the private sector, there's money for corporate welfare, but there's never any money to look after the needs of the many in this country. It's all about outsourcing your responsibility to the private sector. Outsourcing Centrelink services to the private sector. Outsourcing visa applications to the private sector. Outsourcing, you know, a hex debts to the private sector. That's the next thing on the agenda. Outsourcing, you know, the titles office and the ports in Victoria to the private sector. And the list goes on and on. And the third way we can actually tackle this issue is by creating a new entrant, a very old entrant, which is shriveled and almost non-existent, back into the economy. Now, I'm not talking about reintroducing a a strong public sector, which is important, but I'm talking about providing seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives, earmarking 1% of the trillion of the two trillion dollars which is now in superannuation funds to be used as seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives. And the difference between a cooperative and a collective and a state enterprise and a private corporate enterprise is the fact the cooperative and collective exists for the benefit of its members and it provides real services to the community. It actually increases competition in the marketplace when you've got a strong state sector, a strong public sector, so a strong public sector, a strong private sector and a strong collective and cooperative sector. Again, this could soak up millions of people who are only partially employed today. It could remove many people from the social security system. Another simple concept... These are all things that have been tried before which any human being, any society can actually enact in legislation without bloodshed in the streets. It's very simple. Another thing is a living wage. You think, oh, well, I don't like the idea of a universal living wage. It means that rich and poor people get the same amount to start off in. Well, yes, but then you recoup it back in a taxation system. So if you earn from naught to fifty thousand, you get everybody gets fifty thousand dollars who's over say sixteen or eighteen, right? That only increases their personal independence and allows them to escape unhappy domestic or home situations, but it provides for their basic human needs. Say from fifty thousand to hundred thousand dollars, when you're taxed, you've got to give some of that fifty thousand you're originally given back. And if you earn more than a hundred and say hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you've got to give it all back. But what that does is it greatly reduces the bureaucracy and the paperwork that is needed to regulate a social security system which is basically frozen, which can't function. It's so bureaucratic and so privatized. For example, the privatisation of the old Commonwealth Employment Office, right? We now have about four large corporations which dominate the job market in this country. 
and they go through the motions of finding work for most people because they get paid by for going through the motions. And for every dollar the government gives to these organisations to find work for people in the, you know, almost 50 cents goes into running costs and profits for the private organisation. And we're told that the private sector always does it better. Well, the private sector always doesn't do it better because I said at the beginning of the program, the private sector's primary aim is to maximise profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national costs. Simple. So the private sector doesn't necessarily do it better than the state sector. So if you are a socially progressive individual and you've been involved in all these issue-orientated campaigns over the decades which have actually improved the freedoms of many people in our society, start thinking about economic inequality. Start getting involved in social and political movements that are not only just socially progressive, but economically radical. They want to see the state provide more than personal security to its citizens. We want to see the state provide housing security, food security, essential, essential services for each and every individual in this country. And you'll only do that when you come out in numbers. Now, we've got a number of campaigns planned for next year, which I will go through early next year. And these campaigns are basically getting people who are socially progressive who think that all they've got to do is vote for the ALP for things to be hunky-dory to actually move across, move down that aisle, walk down that street and meet those sections of society as we saw in France in the last few weeks that find themselves at the economic cutting edge of that struggle. And again, ultimately, hope, which is the love child of desire and expectation, the desire for change and the expectation that change will occur, ultimately... That is something which is carried in your heart. And if you allow that hope to be crushed, you allow that hope to be destroyed, you allow that hope to be pushed aside, change will never come. And people put their lives at risk. They put their bodies on the line because they have that hope that change will come. And we can see it all around the world. And we can push that barrow. And in the 1968 Paris riots, there was a slogan, tip over the apple carts, tip over the apple cart, apples for everyone. And that's the situation we find ourselves in, where people who've been involved in socially progressive struggles now find themselves alienated from those who are involved in economic struggles, those who are trying to create a future for themselves and their children and their children's children, those who've become desperate, who see no hope. And in the land of Australia, when you have 700,000 people needing food aid every day, 
when you have over 35% of the population on inadequate social security benefits to survive, when the gap by those that have something and those that don't increases, with the amount of resources and capital which is owned by the richest 10%, you know, is five times, six times greater than the, you know, the, the bottom 60%, you begin to realise that change is necessary. And that change won't come by begging and beseeching. It won't come by waiting your turn. That change comes, as we see around the world, by people mobilising, by overcoming their opposition to each other, opposition which is based on ignorance, opposition which is based on race, opposition which is based on gender, opposition which is based on you know, um, sexual orientation. We need to move this struggle forward in the coming year. Because if we don't, there'll be forces in society which live of division, which are supported by governments, which create a them and us mentality. And as the riots in Paris have pointed out to people, that people on both ends of the margin have more in common than we think. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can send me nice letters, Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com. You can join public interest before corporate interest, the fastest growing, inclusive political and social movement in this country, pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. Download the application for another 120, 130 people on the electoral roll and, hey, presto, will be able to apply for registration as a federal political party. And don't forget, the year may be over, but t- next tomorrow is there and we need to change things. Well, you don't have to. You can watch the cricket. You can go onto social media. You can surf the net. You can become desperate or you can become active. You can become involved. You can join different groups. There are always people out there who are trying to push the envelope. So join us. Join us. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via those wonderful people of the Community Radio Network. This program is broadcast in every state in this country. It is broadcast across the world via the World Wide Web, 3cr.org.au. And just in case the local bike is knocked on your door and needs a cup of sugar for his speed lab, don't despair. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Listen to The Anarchist World this week, next week. Minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, Lord, yeah.